Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. Hey, Romans 10, if you guys got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, if you got them, if you'll get them out and uh, open them up or turn them on, I guess. Uh, how many of you just out of curiosity, you got an actual paper Bible that has words in it? Okay, you got it, all right. How many of you are the new, you got the, you know, you're on your phone or you're on your iPad or something like that? That's actually a pretty good percentage. I, 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 the church that I pastor, uh, I feel like it's exactly inverse. Probably 90% of the people that come that have a Bible have it on. Uh, my pastor growing up used to say the sweetest sound he ever got to hear was the sound of the ruffling of the pages as people open their Bibles. I never get to hear that. I get to see the warm glow of God's Word on people's faces, and I'll, <laughs> I'll take it. But it's just not the same. Just not the same. Romans chapter 10, I, I want to repeat what, uh, uh, what Ryan said. I do love this school. I have the privilege of being not once but twice a graduate here. Uh, one of our greatest privileges now being in the community is to be a part of what is happening here and to be able to partner with those of you that God leads to our church or just the seminary in general. Um, you know, I just finished this, uh, read this book by Rodney Stark. Uh, his, he's a uh, historian, church historian from Baylor. And he said that the number one indicator, the number one indicator, the best correlated indicator of what a denomination's future is, is the number and the quality of the uh, uh, pastors and missionaries that are coming, that are being produced by it. And Southeastern is one of the leading institutions in doing that. Um, We are so grateful. I'm grateful for my own legacy here. Uh, You know, when people ask me, like, what is is it about Southeastern? I mean, all the Southern Baptist seminaries are are faithful by God's grace, but, you know, there's a, a few things at Southeastern that just really stand out. One is, this is a Great Commission seminary. Uh, That's more than just a slogan to them. It was here that I learned how literally every single text of the Bible is pointing you into the Great Commission. Uh, And that's something that if you've not been around, you may not not appreciate, you may take it for granted, but this is a place that understands that the mission of God um, is is, is why we exist. Uh, The other is just, I don't know if these are the right words, but I would just call it a humble orthodoxy. Um, Here you're going to find the faith that has been handed down once for all to the saints, given faithfully. But it's like one of my mentors said here, you can believe the doctrines of Christ, but you can hold them with the spirit or the attitude of Satan. And uh, that is not what happens here. Uh, I was taught to just be uh, generous and, and humble in the disposition. And so I feel like in many ways, um, the ministry that God has allowed me to be a part of now is just the fruition of things that were planted and cultivated in me here. And so uh, we take this role that we have with you all very, very seriously. I, in fact, I, I, if I, I didn't tell him I was going to do this, but uh, Mike Calhoun is down here. He is a guy who directs uh, a ministry at our church that uh, just, whether it's interns or apprentices and, and helps us be able to play that role in them. I know that he's here. That lunch that you heard about afterwards is one that he is, is hosting. Uh, Mike, many years ago when I was at Word of Life Bible Institute, was a mentor, ministry mentor in my life. So it's our great joy to have him and his team and a number of our pastors that'll be at that lunch. And so we just love to meet a bunch of you and talk with you about what God is doing in your life and, uh, and your future. So um, anyway, I, I'm not sure if you realize this, if uh, you probably don't, but it can be quite intimidating to preach at a seminary. Because you know that everybody that you're talking to is a serious Bible student. Uh, they are scholarly. They, many of them have out their Greek New Testaments, and they're just waiting for an exegetical fallacy that they can spend the rest of the day talking about. Um, and so it is a little intimidating, no matter how much you preached or how big your church is. Or I'm just telling you, I was confiding all this to my wife earlier this morning, and I think she was trying to encourage me, but she said, you know, she said, listen, just whatever you do, don't try to be intellectual or scholarly or witty or funny. Um, just, just be yourself. Uh, and I was not even sure how I was supposed to take that. So 
This is what, this is what you get right here, all right? Romans chapter 10, I want to spend, I hope you, you found it in your Bible by now. If not, you probably should go to remedial seminary. Uh, I want to spend a few minutes discussing the heart of Christian mission. By the way, for those of you that were at our church this past weekend, um, I apologize because we went through a similar, we went through the exact same text. I'll do a, a few different things with it. Uh, but Scott Hildreth, the director of Great Commission Studies here, and who was the chairman of our elder board at the Summit Church, told me I had to preach this on Sunday. He said, you have to preach this on Thursday. And being a man under authority, I am submitting to my chairman of my elders. So um, here we go. Um, Romans 10, 14 through 17, I want to spend a few minutes discussing the heart of Christian mission. These four verses are the culmination of a 10-chapter case that the Apostle Paul has been laying out for the gospel. For 10 chapters in Romans, Paul has built a case premise by premise, so solid that Harvard Law School used to use it as a case study for how to build a case, premise by premise for why the gospel is the only hope for mankind. Now in chapter 10, Paul arrives at the inevitable implication that this has for the life of every serious follower of Jesus. Here's what he says, verse 14. How then can they call on him they have not believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So faith, you see, verse 17, comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Because there is only one way of salvation, Paul reasons, and that is faith in the finished work of Christ. And because we, the church, are the ones who are entrusted with that gospel message, we owe it to those who have not heard, he says, to do whatever it takes to get the gospel to them. That makes sense, right? Right? I mean, if there's only one way to be saved and we're the only ones who know about it, how could we be doing anything less? If one of us had the cure for cancer, we had discovered it and, and, and did not do everything we could to make the general population know about that, what kind of person would we be? But that brings up one of people outside of the church's primary problems with Christianity. They say to Christians really believe that they have the only way of salvation. I mean, what about people who did not grow up familiar with Christianity? And what about those who've never even heard of Jesus? I've heard this objection raised in gospel conversations, maybe the, the primary one that I get, whether, whether those conversations are taking place on airplanes or on college campuses, in my office, even once in a Waffle House. I had stopped one day at the Waffle House, not far from here, to feast upon what I would now refer to, I refer to affectionately as the cuisine of the gods. Uh, I had just ordered my, my hash brown, scattered, smothered, covered, chunk top, diced, and peppered with a light dusting of jalapenos, just the way that God intended. Um, when I'm about to dig in, and I overhear this conversation that was taking place about two booths away from me uh, between a guy and the waitress, uh, I caught on pretty quickly that they were having a discussion about God, and so my ears naturally perked up. I listened to them go back and forth for a while, and, and then I hear the guy in the booth say to the waitress, he says, you know... I've just decided at this age, at this point in my life, that the most important question you can answer is, who is God and whether you are right with him? And I thought, well, that sounds pretty good. He said, but he continued, he said, but the problem is that there's all these different opinions out there about God, and how are you supposed to know which one is right? Well, y'all, I'm sitting there with my mouth full of hash browns thinking, well, you people are so in luck. What a divine coincidence. I have my master of divinity. That makes me a certified expert on God, right? I mean, master divinity. What a dumb name for a seminary degree, by the way. I've mastered the divine. Actually, I actually put my hand up. 
I put my hand up two booths away to try to get their attentions and was starting to speak when the waitress jumps in and says, yeah, you're right. That is an important question, but you know who I hate? I hate those born again types. Whenever they come in here and you start talking about God, they just take over the conversation, telling you why they're right and you're wrong. They don't care about you. All they do is care about showing you that they're right and shoving what they believe down your throat. Then she looks over and and, and sees my hand and she says, honey, can I help you? And I said, I need some more tea. My glass is totally empty here. Can you fill that back up? Now, the conversation actually turned out great. I was able to really kind of explain to her that even though Christians and I myself acts like that a lot, that Jesus wasn't like that, that he really cared about people so much so that he was willing to tell them the truth. But I shared that because that's how many people see Christians gallivanting about, forcing our religious preferences and our perspectives on everybody else. People say, well, what about those who haven't heard? How is it fair for God to condemn somebody for what they haven't heard? I mean, surely God will allow people to come in other ways. Maybe they did the best with the religion that they had. I mean, isn't that what some of the early church fathers even said? And wasn't there anonymous Christians is how I've heard it referred to? They obey the Christ elements in their worldview. And because of that, God honors that, right? So what about that? Well, remember that what Paul is saying in chapter 10 is built on 10 chapters of gospel logic. So what I want to do is I want to review the logic as briefly as I can to get you into the weight of what he is saying in verse 14, because it's only on, 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 it's only on the foundation of these 10 chapters that you can really feel the, the weight of what he's saying. Yeah, I'm going to give it to you in, in, in a few premises. Premise one, premise one, all people, Paul maintains, have heard about God and rejected him. All people, not just people who've sat in churches. Verse 18, chapter one, for God's wrath, Paul explains, is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people. Theologians tell you the the two key words there to understand what Paul is going after is godlessness and unrighteousness. Godlessness refers to a corruption in our vertical relationship. Rather than being humble and believing and submissive, we are proud and unbelieving and rebellious. Unrighteousness focuses on the horizontal corruption. Rather than being loving and truthful with each other, we are selfish and manipulating. And Paul says it is by this unrighteousness and by this godlessness, this disposition of our heart, that we suppress the truth. Now, suppression, you know, is not the same thing as ignorance. Ignorance means you don't know about it. Suppression means the truth is in there, but you kept yourself from acknowledging it. It's like a beach ball, trying to hold a beach ball underwater. It's always trying to pop to the surface, and you're trying to hold it down. Paul explains, verse 19, because what may be known of God is manifest in them, because God has shown it to them. Two places that Paul indicates God has revealed himself to every person. The first is in them, in their hearts. Through, for example, our longing for eternality, through our, our, our quest to find meaning and significance, through, um, through, through the sense that we have that we are obligated to a moral lawgiver that we're going to give an account to. Things that people in all places at all times have in common, this yearning for something that just tells us we're not a bag of chemicals that are the result of an accident. The in them, second place is to them. To them means from the creation, from looking around, there are are things that scream design and that show us that a being of unspeakable power has created all that there is. Paul says that since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen by everybody, clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead so that they, who is they? They is everybody, so that all people are without excuse. 
We may not ever have heard God's name, Paul says, but our hearts instinctively know that he is there. One of the best little stories I, I ever read on this, just real quick, um, uh, it comes from Annie Sullivan's biography, who was the teacher of Helen Keller. Helen Keller, um, late 19th century, born of uh, accident when she was a child. She can't hear, she can't see. She lives essentially all of her life in a, a dark, quiet room um, because she has no contact with the outside world. Annie Sullivan was the one who first taught her to communicate. Uh, ran water over her hand. You probably heard the story, spelled out water, got her, you know, the concept of, of communication. Well, Annie Sullivan was a very committed Christian, and so she brought over a, a guy named Philip Brooks, who was the local pastor, to come in and teach uh, Helen Keller about God. Helen was about 17 at this point. And so the guy starts to explain to her about God, and Annie Sullivan's trying to communicate. Well, after he explains to her about God, Helen Keller gets very excited and says, oh, is that what you call him? I've always known he was there. I just didn't know what his name was. All people in all places have this sense that there is a God and they know it. Our hearts are so corrupt, however, Paul says, that rather than submit ourselves to that knowledge and seek God, we do one of three things. We rebel against it. We just disobey what we know. And the second option is you distort it. This is the fountain of all false religion. You distort God into an image that you can manage and manipulate. Or you, 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 you deny the truth about God altogether. That would be atheism or agnosticism. You say, well, what about atheists? I know an atheist that genuinely believes there is no God. Paul would say, well, yeah, they may have intellectually convinced themselves there is no God, but their hearts still know the truth. In fact, the reason their minds convinced them that there was no God is because that's what their hearts wanted to be true. And their heart determined how they, they classified the evidence. Paul concludes all this in chapter 3, verse 10. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. Nobody, anywhere, ever. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good. And in case you don't know what the definition of no one is, he goes ahead and defines it for you. Not even one. In other words, the innocent native on a deserted island somewhere, pure in heart and spirit, friends, that person just does not exist. All have turned away. All have become spiritually worthless. There is none who does good, none who has ever sought God, not even one. That's premise number one. All people have heard and rejected God. Premise number two, therefore, Paul says, God has rightfully condemned all. Paul reasons that suppression of faith deserves the wrath of God, right? I mean, if our hearts truly are so wicked that we suppress the knowledge of an all-powerful ruling God, well, then surely that deserves God's wrath, right? I mean, if you put your fist in God's face and you say, no, God, I don't think you should be on the throne. I think I should be on the throne. That deserves the wrath of God. Paul says that's exactly what the human race has said in unison to God. You and I may never have uttered those exact words, but how we live says that to God. I want to live as if I'm the rule maker. I want to live as if it's about my glory and my needs and not the creator's glory. That means, pay attention to this, we're all guilty. Not because of what we have not heard, we're guilty, but because of what we have heard and rejected. That is a crucial thing to understand about the gospel, right? God does not condemn people for not hearing about Jesus. God does not condemn people for not being Christians. God condemns them for suppressing, distorting, and rejecting the knowledge of God that they had, which Paul says everybody's done. All have turned away. All have become spiritually worthless. Not a single one that's ever done good. No one who sought God, not even one. Premise number three, God has made a way of salvation for all. Into this darkness and death, Paul's going to explain it for several chapters. 
God came. He redeemed us, Paul says, chapter 3, from the curse of the law by living the life we were supposed to live, dying the death we were condemned to die on the cross. This was an act of unspeakable grace, which means completely undeserved favor. He now offers it freely to all who will receive it as a gift, a gift that cost him, but a gift that cost the recipient nothing. Premise number four now brings us back to Romans chapter 10. The premise is people have to hear the message to benefit from it. Paul reasons, verse 14, how can they call on the one they have not even believed in? How can they believe in him and whom they have not heard? In order to receive this gift, Paul reasons, they have to hear about it. It was like Martin Luther used to say, it wouldn't matter if Jesus died a thousand times if nobody ever heard about it. Or Carl F. H. Henry, that, that theologian, he used to say, um, he said, the gospel means good news. But technically, it's only good news if it gets to somebody in time. It's only good news if it gets to somebody in time. You say, well, wait a minute. What if somebody never heard about Jesus, but they, they respond to what they see of God in creation or in their conscience? Maybe the good and true parts of their religion, and they're like God or great spirit in the sky or Allah or whatever, whatever name we call you. I don't know everything there is to know about you, but I want to know you and, and surrender to you. Isn't that enough? Well, y'all remember Paul's conclusion. None of us, apart from the grace of God, has ever responded that way. Look at verse 17. See where verse 17, Paul says, the only way for faith to grow up in the heart is through what? Hearing. And hearing comes from what? The preached word of Christ. It's only through the preached word of Christ that faith, without which it is impossible to please God, that's the only way it grows up in somebody's heart. You see, the preached word of God has a strange life-giving power to it. The word of God tells you not only what you are to do, the word of God also gives you the power to do it. We compare it to, for example, the words of Jesus when he would speak to a lame man, and he would say to a lame man, rise, take up your bed, and walk. That's a command. But in the words of that command are the power to obey the command. You and I could tell a, a lame man all day long to get up, and, 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 and he may understand the command, but he can't obey it. Jesus' words not only tell us what to do, they give us the power to do it. That's what gospel preaching is like, Paul is saying. It has the power in it to give the faith it requires. The analogy I often use with our church is, um, imagine that, you know, I come up behind a, imagine one of you is standing on a top of a 30-story building, and you are clinically insane, okay, and you think you're Spider-Man, and you're like up there, and you're about to jump, because you just said you saw it in a movie, and I'm, I come up behind you, and I'm like, don't jump, you will die, you are not Spider-Man. Now, I give you a free choice every single time, because you think you're Spider-Man, what are you going to choose to do? You're going to do it, right? You're going to jump because you think you're Spider-Man. Now, let's just say that I came up behind you and I had a, I know this is not how it works, but I have like a little vial, a needle, and, and it is sanity serum where I could, you know, give you your sanity back. And so right before giving you that command, I poke you with that needle and I put the sanity serum in and all of a sudden you become yourself again and your right mind. I offer you the same choice. Hey, if you jump, you're going to die. If you come back down with me, you can come to safety. Now, what are you going to choose every single time? It's not the invitation was different. It's not that I was more persuasive, it's just that your sanity had been restored. What Paul is saying is the faith in order to please God, the faith to grasp the offer of God is in the preached word of God. Without the preached word of God, there can be no faith. You say, well, I mean, what if somebody responds positively to what they see of God in nature? I'm just, I'm not ready to let that go. What if they're like, God, I really want to know you. Interestingly, in the book of Acts, we actually have a story just like that. Acts chapter 10, you stay there in Romans 10, let me walk you through this really quickly. There was a certain man named Cornelius. He's a Gentile. He was a centurion of the Italian regiment. He was a devout man and one who feared God with all of his household, who gave alms generously to the people. 
He prayed to God always. About the ninth hour, about three in the afternoon, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God coming in and saying to him, Cornelius, and he observed him. He was afraid, and he said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have come up for a memorial before God. Now send for Peter. He will tell you what to do. Meanwhile, Peter's on the other side of the city of Joppa having his own dreams where a bunch of unclean animals come down to blanket, called his pigs in a blanket dream. And uh, he's confused about what it means. And the angel says, go find Cornelius. And the two meet each other, which is probably an awkward moment because Cornelius is like, I think you got a message for me. And Peter's like, I saw pigs fall out of the sky. And they stand there and look at each other for a minute. And then Peter starts explaining the gospel. Here's what's important, okay? At the end of his sermon, at the end of his sermon, Peter concludes his sermon to Cornelius by saying, watch this, to Jesus all the prophets give witness that everyone who believes in him will receive, receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Not, hey Cornelius, God has noticed that you're a really good guy and he's already accepted you because of how you responded to the good parts of what you knew. I'm here to announce to you that you are an anonymous Christian and we're going to give you the official label, you're already saved. No, he says what they always say, you have to believe in Jesus and then you will receive the forgiveness of sins through his name. What we take away from that, friends, is that it is necessary to hear the message of the gospel and believe it in order to get forgiveness. But if there is somebody out there that God has enabled to respond in the right way to what they know, I think Acts indicates to you that God will raise up one of his people to get the rest of the message to him, which leads me to premise number five. Paul says, we, the church, are the only ones who can preach that message. How can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they're sent? Here's something you should study through in the book of Acts. The gospel is only ever preached in the New Testament through a human instrument. You won't find any other way. Search Acts from start to finish. It's always through a human mouth or a human writing. Even the angel that God sent to Cornelius didn't explain the gospel. Y'all, wouldn't that have been more efficient for the angel to be like, hey, Let's not go get Peter. Let's just let me tell you about it right now. Here's the four spiritual laws. Pray the prayer. You know, hold up your I'm going thing. We're done with it, right? Um, it, it, that would have been a lot easier. But even, it's, I'm probably getting in trouble for saying this, but it's almost like it's against the rules. It's like it's against the rules for the angel to share. It's got to be a human instrument that does it. The gospel can only be proclaimed through a human instrument. So see, that leads me to this. Do you ever think that maybe the reason God is stirring in some of you here that the reason is because he is stirring in someone like Cornelius there. I say that because when I left here at seminary and I went overseas, I realized that God sent me into the homes and the lives of a few Corneliuses, one in particular. I may have shared this story here before, but the last conversation I had before I left Southeast Asia was with a guy who had been one of my best friends I would say he hit my best friend when I got to Southeast Asia. Southeastern did a great job preparing me in the 2 plus 2 program, except when it came to language. They dropped me off in Southeast Asia, 100 miles from the nearest English speaker. I could say, hi, my name is JD. Where's your bathroom? My house is on fire. That was the extent of the knowledge that they gave me. So this guy came up. He was a best friend. He just showed me the ropes. Y'all, I shared the gospel with him dozens, maybe 100 times. Um, he was an Islamic youth pastor. He volunteered with at-risk youth. He was one of the, he's one of the most humble, generous, gracious guys. He genuinely loved people. And I just shared the gospel with him. And every time he would say, oh, J.D., my, 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 my brother. He put his hand on my shoulder because they're really touchy over there. He's like, J.D., my brother, you are a great man of faith. And I know you make your mom and dad so proud. 
he said, but, but, but the way that I seek God is through Islam. That's how I was born, and, and you seek him as a Christian, and that's just how it will be. Every single time, that's what he said, every time. The week before I went home, I, I, I drove, he, at this point, he lived about an hour away from me, and I drove out to see him, and um, I, uh, I thought it was the last time I'd ever see him. Y'all, I pled with him. I walked him through scripture after scripture and just said, Ishmael, I want you to be in heaven with me so badly, I can't stand it. But this book says he's the only way, and you've got to come. He's the only way, and I just, I'm pleading with you. It's not just me, it's, it's that. And he sat there for about an hour and listened, and he, I could t- he was a little uncomfortable, but at the end of my presentation, he kind of gathered himself again, and he looked at me, and he put his hand on my shoulder and said, oh, you are a great man of faith, and you make your parents a problem. And then I left, and I thought that was the last I'd ever see him. The day that I was coming home to the United States, he showed up again on my front porch. And I was like, Ishmael, you got something on your, he said, yeah, we need to talk. So we go back in this little back room, and he said, so after I left, after you left the other day, he said, I just kind of tried to forget about it like I always do. He said, but your words were like a kabaratam, which in their language meant um, a weight. It was like this weight that just kept pulling me down. He said, I couldn't quit thinking about it. He said, so that night when I went to sleep, he said, I had this, his eyes can really be used as, he called it meepy, which means like a dream or vision. I had this meepy. He said, and, and, and I, was, I came out of my, my, my front door and, and, and the porch, all of a sudden between my feet, this, this road went from earth to heaven. It was the Jalan Lurus, which in their language means the straight, narrow way to heaven. The Jalan Lurus. And then his eyes got really big and he said, and you were on it. So I was, he was so surprised, I was a little offended. I was like, yeah, I've been trying to tell you that for two years. And he said, um, he said, you were on it. He said, you get all the way up to heaven's gates and there was these huge brass doors and I thought, oh, that's where his journey ends. He'll never go in there. He said, and then all of a sudden, somebody behind those gates, they called your name. They knew who you were. He said, and the doors opened, and you went inside, and the doors closed behind you. And he said, my heart broke because I wanted to go with you so badly. He said, then the doors opened again, and you came back out, and you walked all the way down the Jalan Lurus. He said, I watched you. You walked all the way down here, and you reached out your hand for me. And I wouldn't take your hand because I was afraid. He said, you reached out, and you grabbed my arm, and you pulled me onto your back, and you carried me up into heaven with you. Now, I, 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 am not a, I kid you not, his next words were, at first, I think this was dream that come from eating strange fish. <laughs> he said, but I've had many of these kinds of dreams. That was, this was dream from God. And then he said, can you tell me what my dream means? Now, y'all, I went to Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. We did not have a class on dreams and the interpretation thereof when I was here. <laughs> But I'm happy to tell you that in that moment, I knew exactly what to say. I was like, bro, you are so in luck. Dream interpretation is my spiritual gift. I don't need a class on it. And I sat there for the next, y'all, hour, and I walked him through the gospel again. And I would love to tell you that he became a believer, but he did not. And to my knowledge, he has not. Uh, I do know all of his family died in the tsunami that came through Southeast Asia in 2004 because he wrote me after that. I went back looking for him and wasn't able to find him. Maybe by God's grace, before he dies or I do, I'll have a chance to see him come to faith in Christ. But I share it because of what he said next. He said, I know that my dream at least means that you were sent here by God to show me the way of salvation. He said, but J.D., you were going home this afternoon. You were the only Christian that I've ever known. Do you understand that the reason that God does a great work in places like this is because he's also working on Cornelius's over there. 
And whenever God stirs in a Cornelius, he stirs in a Peter. And maybe the very reason that God has you here, and maybe the reason you're having this enlarged vision, and maybe the reason that you came to a Great Commission seminary is because God is right now at work in places like Southeast Asia and the Sudan and India, and he is stirring Cornelius's who are responding like Cornelius did, but they cannot gain forgiveness until a believer comes and finishes the message. Which leads me to premise number six, the task is urgent. Y'all, if all this is true, if what Romans teaches us about the gospel is true, what does that mean for your life? At most, at most, a third of the people on earth claim to be Christians. That means there are at least four and a half billion people on the planet who confess to not being a Christian. The Joshua Project, a missions research company, estimates that about half of those, they call them unengaged and unreached, which means that as it stands right now, about two and a half billion, a little less than two and a half billion, have no substantial chance to hear the gospel before they die. They say that if you line these guys up, line these people up, five across in a line, they would circle the globe five times. I want you to get your mind around for just a minute. You who sit under gospel privileges every single weekend, who can turn on the TV and the radio, pick up a book at Walmart or in the airport, who can subscribe to any number of podcasts. I want you to get your mind around that kind of line circling the globe five times. By the way, don't turn that number into just a statistic, 2.2 billion people. Joseph Stalin, who I typically don't quote during sermons, but Joseph Stalin said the death of one is a tragedy. The death of a million is just a statistic. Because when you look into the face of one, you realize that every single one of those people is somebody made in the image of God like you are. They're not different. They experience the range of emotions that you experience. They know what it's like to be afraid. They know what it's like to be lonely. They love their children like you love yours. They are loved by their parents like you are loved by yours. Going to hell for them is every bit the tragedy that it would be for one of you. We're leading a generation right now. A lot of college students come to our church and I always tell them, one of the greatest things about their generation is they care about suffering and oppression. All of them. Or like, yes, we got to go, you know, dig wells in Africa, and we got to um, help uh, education reform and women's rights in Sudan. And that's awesome. I love that about this generation. But it's like Piper says, you know that if you believe the gospel, the greatest of all suffering is eternal suffering. And you're not going to hear about that in your college, not here at Southeastern, but you're not going to hear about it at UNC Chapel Hill. You're not going to be, they're not going to do a CNN special on you for doing that. But if you believe the gospel, Paul says, how could you not? How could you not understand this? Or how could you understand this and give your life to seeing it change? So to the church, Paul says, how will they call on him and whom they have not heard? How can they hear unless they're sent? That's an echo, by the way, of what he said in chapter 1. I am under obligation, both to Greeks and the barbarians, both to the wise and to the ignorant. You know, the word that he uses there literally means debtor. Debtor, like you owe somebody money. Well, the Greeks and the barbarians, Paul never met them. How does he feel like he's in debt to them? Well, there's two ways you can be in debt to somebody, right? You can be in debt because you borrow money from them, right? And you owe them. You can also be in debt because somebody gave you money for them, right? I mean, so if, if you were CEO of Feed the Children and somebody gives you a million dollars and you go put it in a bank account and do some upgrades on your house and pay off your school debt and get some new clothes, what would people say about you? They would say you're stealing. That's not your money. You owe it to those for whom it was given. That's what Paul thinks about the gospel message. I was no more worthy than anybody else around the world. No more, but God blessed me with it. 
And with the privilege of hearing the gospel comes the responsibility of spreading the gospel. And to not do that, Paul says, is stealing. Believing the gospel comes with an obligation to the gospel. That's Paul's conclusion with it. So he said, I'm talking about being called to it. He said, what are we, what are we talking about? Call? We know what we're called to. By the way, it was this reality that God used when he called me. I was at a, a school planning on going into law. Nothing wrong with that. And God leads some people to that. But I was studying the book of Romans. And suddenly all the logic of it made sense to me. God had a right to condemn, but he made a way. And he revealed it to me, not because I was more worthy or not because I was less sinful, but just in his grace. And what's not fair was for me to get that and do nothing with it. By the way, in that moment, it was a defining moment in my life. I knew I had three options with this new kind of Romans logic. Number one, I could deny it. This was where the liberalism first really knocked at my heart's door. Hey, why don't you change a few of these things and make it more comfortable? And y'all, I'm telling you, that, that door, you're going to encounter it in seminary, it is so appealing. And it just beckons you like, hey, it's easier to believe this. But I knew that once you start down that road, there's literally nowhere that you're ever going to get off. Once you set yourself as the judge of the Bible, then at that point, God's not God, you're God. The Bible's not a salad bar where you take the parts you want and you leave the parts you want. And once you go down that path, Rob Bell, Jen Hatmaker, there's no telling where you're going to end up. I knew I could deny it, but I didn't seem like an option. I knew I could ignore it, which just seems like what most of the church in the West was doing. Let's just pretend like it's not true. Let's sing songs. And let's not really, really, let's not come face to face with what our gospel means. Or the third option was I could embrace it. And I could just say, God, here am I, send me. And y'all, suddenly everything in my life looked different. I've often compared it to like if you're walking in downtown Raleigh and you're walking by some railroad tracks and you see a nine-year-old child that's on the railroad tracks and he's hurt and there's a train coming and he can't get up. There's not a one of you in here that would be like, you know, let me stop and pray about what God is calling me to. Lord, just pray that you show me what your will is. God, put a peace in my heart of it. You know, no, we know what the will of God is. Pick the child up. The Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And the only way they're going to come to repentance is if they hear and they can't hear without us. So stop talking about finding the will of God. It's not lost. And if you're called to lead a church, if you're called to, to go into ministry, this has to be part of what you're doing. So let me conclude this really fast with just five practical steps. Or two, four, I'll give you four. I'll cut one out for time. Number one, we need to pray that members in our churches will say yes to God. We need to actively pray. It starts with prayer. That's what Jesus said. Pray the Lord of the harvest, send forth laborers into the harvest. At our church, we're recognizing that these come in three varieties. Listen to this. Number one, there are those who are called to leverage their careers for the glory of God and do it overseas. I just got back from Southeast Asia where we got a whole team of people who are connected to the IMB, but the IMB doesn't pay for a one of them because they're there on jobs, so-called secular jobs. We just put the vision out. They found a place. They formed a team. They are thriving. They are in a community where, 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 where people have literally heard, never heard about Jesus, and I am over there visiting with people that they're leading to faith in Christ. It is amazing. Some of them will be called to leverage. Some will be called to leave. I realized when I was over there that there are some people that could have very prosperous careers that God is not saying leverage your career. He's telling you to leave it and go overseas. We have to put that out there. And then the third one, which I think is especially true for you, is lead. I realized when I was over there again, um, the strategic importance of what we call international Baptist churches. And we are putting this vision out there for our people to say, hey, some of you, places like London and Kuala Lumpur and Mumbai, where you'll have a church actually in English, but it will be a hub for a lot of other missionaries who are going to come and live and, 
and begin to do work in some of those cities. In fact, some of you, I would bet there's somebody in here that God's going to put that on your heart and he's going to take you to one of these cities. You thought you were going to pastor in Birmingham, but he said he's going to take you to Mumbai or Kuala Lumpur because this is a part of what's happening. Number two, lead churches to take sending seriously. I know God hadn't called everybody to go, but here's what I also know. It's interesting when Paul says, he doesn't say, how will they hear unless I go? How will they hear unless we're sent? He recognizes that sending is a whole church process. Here's what I understand is true about the Summit Church, or ought to be true. Those of us who send ought to be every bit as committed to the task as those who go. It's like John Piper says, you got three choices, go, send, or disobey. And if you're going to send, it's not like the task is less for you. William Carey told the English Baptist right before he left to go to India, I'll dangle on the end of that rope for you, but you've got a promise to hold securely to the other side. What's that mean? It means giving radically. Every year we give away about one out of every five dollars that comes into the Summit Church goes for Cindy. We send out our best members. We just sent out our 1,200th member to leave our church and go live on one of these things overseas. It means making it easy for our people to go short term. I borrow a line from David Platt here, and we challenge our people to tithe their year. Why not give, why not just give one week a year that you can experience what God is doing around the world? Let me say it again. Those of us who help sin should be every bit as committed to the work as those who go. Number three, you've got to be sent right now to the people in your life. I don't know everything about what God's called you to, but what I do know is that he has you and the jobs he has you and the places he has you for a reason, and that's just how he does. He sends people. And you've got to be faithful to that. There's uh, every once in a while I hear from a guy named George who lived across from me in college for two weeks, just two weeks. He got kicked out of his apartment because he got in a fight. He, he, this dude was a mess. They put him in across the hall from me for two weeks. He and I stayed up late every night talking about the gospel. He really never heard any of this. He comes in my room one morning, 3 a.m., second Thursday he was there. He's like, wakes me up. He's like, J.D., you awake? I'm like, I am now. He said, uh, he said, I need to talk to you. So we go in his room. He's like, I just, I just, I'm just been so confused. And I'm walking around. I was walking around downtown and I was just like, God, what do you want from me? And I turned a corner and there was a sign in a storefront that said, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He said, I think God was trying to speak to me. I said, I do too. And he said, <laughs> and so he got down and he prayed to receive Christ. I thought that was the end of the story, but he contacted me about four years later and said, I think God's telling me to go into ministry. I was like, you sure about that? Because I remember you. And he's like, yeah. Last day, he, every two or three years, he reaches back out to me to give me an update. Last I heard from him, he was, he's a Christian counselor now, trying to help people that are every bit as screwed up, he says, as when he was in college, and he's doing a great job. Two weeks, that's all I got. God has put people in your life, and he needs you to be sent to them, and you can't fail at your post. Last one, number four. Number four, consider crossing a boundary. This is big for you all. Listen. It's not a long point, but it's an important one. Paul knew that if this work was going to get done, a bunch of us are going to have to intentionally cross geographic and cultural boundaries. I get it, okay? It's easier for any of us to minister in our home context. It's easier for me to preach sermons in my home context. It's easier to share Christ with coworkers and roommates and sweetmates and people who share my own political disposition. Paul says a bunch of us got to be willing to cross boundaries to other neighborhoods, other parts of the city, places around the world where they don't even speak our language. Paul said, that's what I got to do. I, yes, I'm much more effective 
in local Judean cities, but I've got to go to Turkey, and I've got to get to Africa, and I've got to get to all these places because they can't hear unless, unless I go, unless I'm sent. Listen, brothers and sisters, the only reason that you and I are here is because some past generation of Christians did this faithfully for us. I would bet not many of you here are of Jewish origin. The gospel didn't start in America. It didn't start in the European bloc. It didn't start in Africa. It didn't start in a Hispanic culture. It started with a group of people who said, I'm going to carry it to the Gentile world. Then I'm going to take it to Europe. Then we're going to take it to Africa. Then we're going to take it to the new world. And it usually was at the cost of their blood. And they would all much rather have stayed and just ministered to people locally. You need to consider crossing a boundary and realize that God is going to put that on people's hearts if the Great Commission is going to be done. I don't know what he's called you to, but I would say all of us should be able to agree that those four things ought to shape us, right? Again, number one, number one, if the task is urgent, we need to pray that members in our churches will say yes to God. We need to lead churches that take sending seriously. You got to be sent to the people in your life and you got to consider crossing a boundary. Father, I pray. I pray for this group. And I'm trusting that right now there are people that you're stirring in their heart. Let me ask this real quick as our worship team comes up here. I'm not asking you to make a commitment. I'm just asking you to acknowledge something. I'm going to ask two questions. First of all, if you can right now honestly say, Lord, it's a blank check. Literally, wherever you tell me to go, wherever you tell me to do, I'm willing right now to raise my hand and just testify. I'm willing and I'm ready, wherever. Just could you just put your hand up? You're not impressing anybody. I'm not trying to figure out who's not got their hands raised. But... Okay, in just a minute, I'm going to have you put them down. Just hold them up. Hold, just get, hold them up. I'm going to have you all put them down unless, unless, again, you're not making a commitment, but you think, I think God might be calling me to cross a boundary. I don't know for sure, but I just want to say, Lord, I'm ready and I'm willing. Put your hand down unless you're in that category. Keep it up. I think God might be telling me to cross a boundary. Father, I pray for every hand that is raised on both of them, but especially the second one. Guide their steps. Reveal to them. God, send them into the harvest fields, which are plenteous. Make them fishers of men, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.edu.